Hello and welcome to a very special episode of ZSL's Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Boom, postdoctoral researcher at the Zoological Society of London's very own Institute of Zoology. And today we will not just talk about conservation in far-flung places as we do very often in these podcasts. No, today I have actually travelled because today, wait for it, I'm in Cambridge. <laughs> Now, is that disappointment I hear there? Well, today I am visiting the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species, or rather the IUCN Red List Unit, the team behind the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species. So what is the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species and why does it matter? To discuss this and the common misconceptions surrounding the IUCN Red List, I've come to visit two very important people who eat, sleep and pretty much breathe, if not are, the IUCN Red List. So with me today are Craig Hilton-Taylor and Caroline Pollack, who really are the oracle on anything related to IUCN, Red Lists, Threatened Species, and extinction risk. So let's start with the basics. What is the IUCN Red List? Well, the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species is the world's most comprehensive information source on the conservation status of animals, plants and fungi. But it's more than just a list. It's also not just not red. And it doesn't just contain information about threatened species. So it's basically a compendium of information on plants, animals and fungi that have been assessed to evaluate the risk of them becoming completely extinct if the current conditions remain as they are. The assessment is based on things like how quickly the species has been declining, if it has been declining at all, how restricted its distribution ranges, how many of them are left in the wild, and what threats are affecting the species and how severe are those threats. Okay, so just to get this right in my head, when we hear about the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species, it's kind of a misnomer, as in there's actually non-threatened species on the IUCN Red List. Yeah, that's right. They have threatened species and species that are already extinct, species that are almost threatened, species that are at a very low risk of becoming extinct, and a whole suite of other things. So we've got different categories, nine different categories that really cover all sorts of scenarios from extinct, the extreme case, to very low risk of becoming extinct. If we hear in the news, for example, 25% of mammals are threatened with extinction, or one in five reptiles, or that the western black rhino has gone extinct. So in most cases, I assume this relates directly to the information on the IUCN Red List. Yeah, absolutely. That's often the starting point for all of these facts and figures and in fact it's often the starting point for conservation actions and developing actions in the field. I suppose that brings me to my next question. So why do we need this red list of threatened species? Who uses this information in the end? Well the red list is on the internet and so it's a resource that's available to a very very wide audience of people from school children doing school projects to teachers who are trying to teach children. We also try and target the media so that they can help us get the message out to the wider world about what's happening to species. So journalists use the Red List all the time to find out stories behind species that are declining or becoming extinct. Students at universities, even university lecturers who are doing research projects, use the Red List as a key information source to find out where the gaps are in our information and in our knowledge so that they can develop projects to try and fill those information gaps. Uh, scientists and conservation organizations all around the world use the Red List data to inform where we should be doing conservation work around the world. And then we've also got the politicians and governments. They're interested in Red List information because they've got to develop the policies. How best to develop that by actually starting with what is threatened. Start that with the Red List. International agreements and conventions. Countries all around the world sign up to all of these conventions like the CBD, CITES. The Red List data have actually been built into these 
these conventions. The data are used to monitor progress that countries make towards the targets set by all of these massive agreements. I suppose the CBD stands for Convention on Biological Diversity. Yeah. CITES is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. Exactly, yes. yeah. So the big conventions that deal with biodiversity at the global level. Private businesses as well. You might think, why would a mining company, for example, be interested in looking at the Red List? What business have they got with species? Well, they're developing projects and they want the resources from nature, but they don't want to destroy nature. They use the Red List to help inform things like environmental impact assessments so they can plan their development projects in a sustainable way and it minimises what impacts they have on biodiversity. And the Red List is even a weird source of inspiration, isn't it? Sometimes, a wonderful so, source of inspiration. Yeah. <laughs> so, How come? Well, Craig's well, had all yes, sorts I've been of working with a children's book author recently who's done an amazing book around the Red List and the artist put together an amazing set of pictures just illustrating the species and the habitats and the impacts of people on the species. And the Red List, because it has so many different stories, it's just used to inspire artists who are doing artworks, music performers, you name it. There's a bit of art form out there that's been driven by the Red List. Poetry, We've even embroidery. Had, yeah, embroidery. <laughs> We've, even had, We've, even had yes. Yes. Yeah. We've even had people coming to us and saying, I want to form a new band. What, what do you suggest we call it? We want to call it something weird to do with a species. I think I, I said the bastard quiver trees. <laughs> <laughs> the what? <laughs> the bastard quiver tree. <laughs> Excellent. It's an aloe species that occurs in South Africa and Namibia, and it's critically endangered at the moment. Oh, wow. So that doesn't bode well for the success of the band. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully the band's legacy will live on and, and pay tribute to the tree. <laughs> okay. um, I also noticed that we're recording this podcast in the Zappa room. So there's another link <laughs> yeah. of a species that... Is it on the ISUN Red List? It is on the Red List. It's a, it's, a, it's a mud skipper. occurs in New Guinea and threatened with extinction because of impacts on mangrove swamps. And, and it's named after Frank Zappa. <laughs> clearly described by a Frank Zappa fan. So <laughs> excellent. So I suppose we already talked a little bit about some of the categories when we talked about the bastard quiver tree. <laughs> yeah, the critically endangered. <laughs> the critically endangered bastard quiver tree. These categories, when we look at the red list, what do we define as a threatened species? A threatened species falls into one of three categories. But the category critically endangered, which means that species is at an extremely high risk of becoming extinct in the near future. And then we have the endangered category, which means it has a very high risk of becoming extinct, and then vulnerable, which has a high risk of becoming extinct in the near future. So those three categories together, when we talk about threatened species, we mean a species that's assessed under any of those three categories. And the other categories are, we talked about the low extinction risk category, that's least concern, right? That's right, yeah. We have nine categories overall, and they go from the extreme of something now being extinct, which is the extinct category. Makes sense. Uh, species that no longer occur in the wild, so it might be something you only see in a zoo or in a botanic garden, that would be extinct in the wild. Then we have the three threatened categories. And then lower down the extinction risk scale, we have a near-threatened category for those species that are not quite threatened. We don't want them to be threatened, but it won't take much to push them into that status. And then we have a least concern category, which is the lowest risk of becoming extinct in the near future. We have a couple of other categories. And then, of course, in many cases, we don't have enough information to assess the extinction risk of the species, so we end up putting them into what we call the data-deficient category. And those are really important because they could be equally as threatened as something as listed as critically endangered. And so we really stress to the users of the redness that they should pay as much attention to the data deficient species as they do for the critically endangered when they're doing conservation. But also those are key priority species for further research work so we can get the data to assess them properly in the future. 
and then the other category is what we call not evaluated. So this is the vast majority of the world's species that are, have not been looked at so far, and we have no idea whether they're extinct, whether they're still extant, how threatened they are. We have no idea. Okay, so I looked up the number this morning on the IUCN Red List. There are now 91,523 species listed. Correct. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. And I suppose overall, for starters, it tells us a lot about how many not evaluated species there might be out there, right? I mean, while this sounds like an impressive number, and it is, that's a lot of assessments, there's also... Yes, so there are about 1.8 to 2 million described species in the world at the moment. The real number is probably much higher than that, but we have no idea what the real number is. Based on the described species, we've only assessed 5%. And here I am keeping you from your work as well, which <laughs> technically I shouldn't be doing. You said this is a scale of extinction risk. You probably get these, this question quite a lot, but from this list, can you tell me what, say, the top 10 threatened species are? And which species are the next ones to go extinct? <laughs> That's quite a challenging question, and we don't have an answer to that. Um, yeah, I figured it would be, sorry. <laughs> yeah, the, the highest um, threatened category, as I say, it is critically endangered. And we've got, oh gosh, I can't even remember how many thousands, 20,000? Probably over 25,000 are critically Threatens. endangered alone. 5,583 critically endangered. <laughs> I'm over-egging it. Cut. <laughs> 5,000, over 5,500, sorry. So basically, choose any one of those 5,500 species and that's your list, really. There's not really a top 10. That's quite all right. I thought there might not be a top 10, but at least now we know that there's a top 5,000. 5,500. I already forgot the number again. <laughs> Where is the IUCN Red List going? What's its target? A few years ago, a group of scientists sat down together from our Red List community and worked out how many species we need to have on the Red List to make it much more representative of biodiversity as a whole. It would cover all the major taxonomic groups and cover all the major ecosystems of the world. And the magic number that emerged out of that was 160,000. And so they wrote a paper called The Barometer of Life, trying to turn the, the Red List into a meaningful measure of what's happening to biodiversity. And it talked about this target of 160,000. So we have adopted that as part of the Red List strategic plan to try and have assessed 160,000 species for the Red List by the end of 2020. That is in two years' time, two years time. and a bit. Yes, so it's a hugely ambitious target that we are trying to escalate the way we assess assessments, bringing in lots of national level assessments that have been done around the world, and looking at new technologies and methodologies we can use to help speed up the process. So a whole range of different approaches, uh, new funding to help fast track some of the assessments. The speed has certainly picked up uh, and we're trying everything we can now to do nothing but eat, sleep and breathe assessments for the next <laughs> two bit years so we reach our target. <laughs> up to the moment, when it turns up, and um, ropes you into doing a podcast, of course. Um, so yes, that's quite a substantial goal, which I suppose um, begs the next question. Who does this kind of thing? Who does Red List assessments? <laughs> well, we're a very small team, so clearly we can't do them all on our own. IUCN has a network of specialist groups, which are scattered all across the world, and there are taxonomic specialist groups like the African Elephant Specialist Group, and there are regionally based specialist groups like the Brazilian Plants. Brazilian Plants, yeah. yeah. There are over 11,000 members members in this whole network. And those are scientists out in the field gathering data. They have the knowledge about all these species and they compile all the data and do the assessments. That's generally the process, but basically anybody 
can do an assessment if you have enough knowledge about the species and you understand the categories and criteria so you know how to apply them and come up with an extinction risk assessment. But anyone can do it, but in reality most of the work is being done by the IUCN Specialist Group Network. But in addition to the Specialist Group Network, we also have nine Red List partners who are helping to produce the Red List and oversee the process. Each of those partners represents a network of other organisations and a huge network of scientists. So, for example, BirdLife International deals with all the bird assessments. It's the BirdLife Partnership, which involves hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. Virtually every country in the world has a BirdLife partner. They're involved in doing the bird assessments. It goes way beyond the IUCN SSC specialist groups. The number of people involved in the Red List and producing the Red List is probably in the tens of thousands of people. And, of course, well, CEDASL is also a IUCN Red List partner. Valued Red List partner. A very valued Red List partner. Um, and that's not just for the podcasting. We host uh, some of the specialist groups as well as lead on a few of the assessments. Now that I know what can be assessed, pretty much anything that's either an animal, a plant or fungi, and into what categories, what do I need to collect? What's the kind of data that I need to put together these assessments? Anything that will tell you about the risk of that species disappearing off the planet. And we're talking about things like, where does it live? How large is its distribution? Is it very restricted or does it occur across a very wide area? What habitats does it rely on? Is it relying on one particular habitat that if it disappears, then it's got nowhere to go? Or can it adapt to lots of different situations? Is the population declining? And if it is declining, how fast is that happening? Do we know how many individuals there are in the population? Is it a very massive population size that it has, or is it only a handful of individuals left? Things like, what are the threats that are affecting it? What is pushing it towards extinction, if it's being pushed towards extinction at all? Is utilisation an issue for it? Sometimes harvesting goes on, but it's not an issue. It's done very sustainably, and the species can cope very well with it. But if it becomes an issue, we need to know about that. And what conservation actions are in place to help that species from becoming extinct? That's a lot of information. (laughs) I shall start collecting now. So I suppose in terms of the assessment process, really, it's looking at a number of symptoms that are indicative of a high extinction risk or extinction risk generally. So something like you already said, small range size, I suppose, small populations, fast declining populations, Mm -hmm. for example, these kind of things are the kind of quantitative data that we would need to apply the categories. Yeah, exactly. We sometimes think of the red list as being like walking into a casualty ward. So you may have a casualty unit with lots of people with injuries and some of those injuries are very minor and some of them are life-threatening. And the team in that casualty unit has to do what they call triage, which means they have to assess all those people in that room and work out which people need urgent attention and which people can actually be left to scream and howl and hold their cut finger for a little bit longer. So that's basically what we're doing with biodiversity. We're trying to assess how extreme are their needs. Are they going to become extinct in the near future or can they just carry on as they are and they're absolutely fine? What are the most common threats to our species? Well, there are a whole range of different threats that are impacting species today, and it's mostly because of growing human population and our growing need for more space and resources. So the most common threat to the majority of species on the red list is loss of habitat. Um, And this has been caused by expanding agriculture, changing agricultural practices, expanding urban areas, expansion of commercial activities, especially the extractive industries, deforestation, which is usually linked again to agriculture and urbanisation, ground and surface water extraction for human needs, building of dams. All of those activities come at the expense of natural habitats. 
And then I also mentioned over-exploitation. People have been harvesting and hunting animals and plants forever, really. We've done that to survive, and that's a very natural thing to do. And when it's done sustainably, and by sustainably I mean the population can recover and cope with that level of harvesting, is not a problem. The problem comes when we start to remove too many individuals too quickly from a population, and the population doesn't have time to recover before the next harvesting happens. So over-exploitation is a very major concern to species. There's a huge demand at the moment for pangolin scales for medicinal purposes in Far East and we've just seen a huge growth in this illegal trade and as a result pangolins have moved up the reddest categories in the last few years. And I suppose also in terms of general threats quite often there's an emphasis on how threatened freshwater species are. Yes often freshwater ecosystems are regarded as areas that should be used by people and wetlands are so it should be reclaimed which is a bizarre concept and so th- as if we had them beforehand. Yes exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. <laughs> it always amazes me to drive along and see a wetland and the sign saying reclamation underway and reclamation means destruction. <laughs> and all the species that occur there. And Another misnomer, yeah, really. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and many people depend on freshwater ecosystems for, obviously, fresh water, but also for all the food they supply. And so we're putting our world at major risk by destroying those wetlands. Of the species that have gone extinct, what were they generally affected by? Well, lots of island species have gone extinct. Island species tend to have small ranges, and so they can be very quickly affected by different threats. And one of the key threats that's really impacted on small island species are invasive species, introduced plants and introduced animals. So, for example, in some of the Pacific islands, brown house snakes have been introduced, and we're seeing massive extinction events happening on those islands. Hawaii, lots of different invasive species introduced. Avian malaria, which has really destroyed the bird life of Hawaii. Alien plants, which are impacting all sorts of different species. Deer, feral pigs, you name it. Hawaii is just full of invasive species, and the native fauna and flora has suffered as a result. I feel that we need to cheer ourselves up a little bit at this stage. Apart from the, let me get this right, bastard quaver tree, Quiver tree. <laughs> Quiver tree. Still can't say it. I will learn this by the end of the podcast. What's the strangest species you have seen assessed on the red list? Oh, it's all sorts. I, I change my mind about this every time the red list is updated. <laughs> I find out about something that I've never, ever heard about before. Recently, I've intended to go back to the same species over and over again, and that's the Atlantic horseshoe crab, which is absolutely brilliant. It's a part of a group of species that we call a living fossil. So its evolutionary lines existed for the last 400 million years and in fact the line has survived five extinction events so far and they kind of look a bit like big pebbles until you turn them upside down then they look like the creature from the alien movies so they're really kind of scary but they're not scary at all in fact they've got an incredible copper based blood which is bright blue but that blood has an exceptional ability to fight off infection so this has been picked up by the pharmaceutical and biomedical industries that can use that blood to extract a source called limulus amoebocyte lysate and I do have that written down because I can't remember it And they use this LAL substance to test medical equipment and vaccines to make sure they don't cause infections to humans. So if you have ever, ever had an operation or a vaccine, the horseshoe crab has helped you in your life. So it's really important to keep that species, even though you've never heard of it before and you've never seen it. It's really significant. That, to me, that is just one of the best species. And how how are they currently doing? They are, well, the uh, Atlantic horseshoe crab is vulnerable, not because of this extractive industry of its blood. They do 
actually release live individuals back into the wild again. But mainly it's vulnerable because of habitat loss, because of being harvested for fisheries bait. It gets caught up in bycatch and shrimp trawl fisheries. So there's a whole lot of other things, climate change, rising sea levels, changing temperatures, that's affecting its reproduction. So all of that is pushed into the vulnerable category. So after surviving five major extinction events, we are now trying to cause it more bother and probably succeeding. Yeah, the thing about the last five extinction events, they were severe, but they happened over a fairly long time period. Mm. So like the first major mass extinction happened over the course of about a million years. And a lot of species died, but it happened at a fairly slow rate. Now the rates of extinction we're seeing are 100 to 1,000 to even maybe even 10,000 times faster than the normal background rate. So this really is a major problem for species now. And so this is also why it's important for us to have something like the IUCN Red List, because I suppose quite often people say, but extinction is just you know a normal part of of life but i suppose what we see at the moment is unprecedented in terms of the speed and also this time it's all because of the impacts of humans uh, yeah. is really the key factor so it's all the threats you've talked about unsustainable use illegal hunting habitat destruction and so on so it's completely within our control to do something about the situation yeah the one species wiping out a lot of other species so as a result, there's never been a greater time to know more about the status of species than current situation. Again, I feel we need cheering up. So, Craig, um, <laughs> what is the strangest species you have ever seen? Well, my, one of, of my favourite species is one that we focused on very early on in the Red List updates with the Lord Howe Island sick insect, or phasmid, as they call it. And, or the uh, walking sausage. Or the walking sausage. So it's a stick insect, and so it's, it looks like a piece of stick, but it's quite a large stick, about 15 centimetres is long, so it's quite a large invertebrate, and it occurs on a tiny little island way off the Australian coast, very seldom visited place, but fishermen used to go there and were living on the island, and they used the insect as fishing bait, because there were lots of them all over the place, and by the 1920s they realised, oh, hang on, this thing is gone, they couldn't find it anymore, and so it got listed on the redis as being possibly extinct. In 1964, there's a small rocky outcrop away from Lord Howe Island called Bell's Pyramid, and some climbers were on there and found some dead carcasses, and they thought, oh, it might still be there. There were lots of expeditions to look for it, and they couldn't find it. So eventually it was declared extinct on the red list. And then in 2001, some scientists visiting the island found them again. Really exciting. (laughs) That is very exciting. So they captured two individuals, took them back to Melbourne Zoo, two pairs of individuals, one to Melbourne Zoo and the other pair to a private collector, and they bred them successfully. There are over 9,000 certainly at Melbourne Zoo. I don't know how many are worldwide now, but there are lots of them now. But now the good news is that they've been able to take them and put them back on Lord Howe Island. They removed all the invasive species that were killing it before, and it's been conservation success stories. It's still listed as critically endangered, but if the good efforts continue the way they're going, it's a species that will move down the redders categories and just shows what can be done with good conservation effort. Excellent, that is a very good news story. I do like it, and it's also an invertebrate story. I like it even more. Um, How often does this happen? Because I suppose what you're really trying to achieve is have a really robust system where if you tell people that something's extinct, it's probably very likely extinct. How often does this happen that these species that are declared extinct come back from the dead? The Lazarus species, as we call them. Yeah, I like the the biblical (laughs) reference there. It's very nice. So, <laughs> so it does happen. We are trying to improve the rigour by which we declare species as extinct, and we've had a whole team of scientists working around the criteria for when we might declare a species extinct. It's always hard to know for absolutely certain that a species has gone. Because often species are very cryptic, have particular lifestyles that make them hard to survey and to observe. Some of them occur in areas that are impossible to get into because of either war or just really remote, inaccessible places. So 
It's hard to be 100% certain, but we try to be quite rigorous about declaring a species as extinct. So we often wait a long time before we say, yes, that species has gone extinct. And then the incentive is to people, let's go try and find this thing again, prove the wrong. Sure enough, <laughs> they often do. <laughs> Maybe but, you could just use this as a way to in kind of instigate more research into yeah. species that you really want to get more yeah. data on. But you know, in 2004, <laughs> when we launched the results of the global amphibian assessment, we showed that there had been this massive decline and loss of amphibians around the world because of another invasive species, a fungus that's causing disease in frogs, and it's lethal. And there are lots of frogs, as far as we know, had disappeared, but we weren't sure whether to list them as extinct or where to place them. Some of them were called data deficient because we didn't know if they were there or not. And there have been a series of expeditions now to try and look for these lost frogs. And they found a few of them, but in many cases there's been no trace, and so they are now being listed as extinct. Going back to some slightly more technical points about the red lists, I had a look at some recent news headlines that were linked to the IUCN red list. Um, especially with regard to improvements in the status of some of the more charismatic species. Given what we already talked about in terms of how the IUCN defines a threatened species and having specific terms for their categories, for example, it's probably not surprising that some of these news stories, to me at least, seem like they can relatively easily be misinterpreted. A few years back, we had giant pandas rebound off endangered list. Then last year, snow leopard no longer endangered. So if they are no longer endangered... What are the panda and the snow leopard now? Hmm. It could be misinterpreted as they're no longer threatened. Yeah, I think the problem here is that people really, as you said, don't understand what those technical terms mean. And in the past, the word endangered has been used a bit too liberally by the media in particular. They interpret endangered as being threatened. But on the IUCN red list, endangered is a very specific category. And it's one, as I said before, it's one of three categories that indicate a species is threatened. So both of the species, the giant panda and the snow leopard that you've mentioned, have moved from endangered to vulnerable, which means they are actually still threatened. And we really do need to still look out for their future. So technically, both of them still a threatened species, just not as threatened as previously thought or as they previously were. Yeah, exactly. So can species ever come off the red list altogether? No, so they never come off the red list. They're always on the red list. It's just their status changes. They become less threatened with extinction, hopefully, over time. And so they move down eventually to hopefully least concern, which means that they have a low probability of extinction. So they still are on the list. The information is there and you can see what the historic status was. But they don't come off the red list, which is I think, a misunderstanding. So I suppose if they improve to the best possible status, it would just be least concerned. Least concerned, yes. yes. And that's what we want. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. indeed what we want. That's the end goal. So species can change categories. Um, what causes these category changes? Well, in some cases, it's what we call a genuine change, meaning the species has improved so much, ideally, that it has moved down a category or maybe even moved down more than one category. Conservation action policies that have been put in place have made the threats less or even be removed moved entirely and the population has recovered. Or it might go the other way. You might be a genuine deterioration in the status of the species. So you have a species where the population has declined massively and rapidly, or its range has shrunk massively and the threats have intensified and it moves up a category, so it moves a step towards extinction. Those are the cases that we want to highlight and act on. There are other cases where a species can change category. The red list isn't a static document. We're updating it constantly. And as species change in their situations, they can get better and worse. The level of our knowledge also changes as well. So there's people out there in the field gathering data, out doing exciting, wonderful things while we're sitting in the office doing a podcast. 
Um, they're out doing field work and gathering data and seeing all these amazing species and gathering more information and improving our knowledge. And there's also technological advances as well. So we're able to look into different parts of species lives that we could never look at before because we've now got cameras and drones and mapping software and all these fantastic things that we can use. So over time, our information improves. So we reassess species and perhaps it was endangered back in the year 2010 and now we reassess it today but we've got better information and we find out that our assumptions back in 2010 because we had data gaps were not quite right so now we're looking at it we might find out that the species is actually less threatened than we thought it was before or more threatened so it might move up to critically endangered or down to vulnerable and when that happens we call it a non-genuine change it's basically a refinement of the assessment based on having better information so in a nutshell what happened with a giant panda when it was downlisted so with the giant <laughs> vulnerable. vulnerable. Yeah, so this happened in 2016, so it moved from endangered to vulnerable. So this was a genuine change in the status of the species. The Chinese government fund regular census surveys for the giant panda. Even back in 2008, the indications were that the giant panda population was starting to increase. They erred on the side of caution and kept the listing as endangered at that point. But that trend continued, and the most recent surveys have shown that the numbers are increasing. The number of mature individuals are over the threshold to keep it in the endangered category. What about the case of the snow leopard? That was a different situation. Just like the giant panda, there's been lots of conservation effort going on. Like the giant panda, it moved recently from endangered down to vulnerable. But this time it was a non-genuine change. So the previous assessment back in 2008 was based on an estimated population size of less than 2,500 mature snow leopards wandering about. But then in 2016, new information had become available. So there'd been eight years to gather more data. And the experts analysed that new data and found that their previous population estimate wasn't quite right. So they revised that estimate and it went up to at least 2,700 mature individuals in the population. It may be even higher than that. Um, It's not a massive difference between 2,500 and 2,700, but it is enough to just tip it over between the endangered threshold and the vulnerable threshold. We've refined the assessment. It's still threatened, not as threatened as we thought it was, but we're still going through a declining trend overall globally. So if we don't address that trend, there's a real high risk that the snow leopard could actually bounce into endangered again, but this time for genuine reasons. So there's a really important reason for keeping conservation action going. Excellent. The saga continues. (laughs) It does. And the range of the snow leopard covers about 12 countries. So conservation efforts really involves a lot of cooperation between different countries. That can be quite a challenge in itself. You know, even with the giant panda, which is only in one country, changing the status from endangered to vulnerable, we really stressed that there was still lots of work that had to be done. The species wasn't out of risk. There were still lots of issues. And looking further into the future, we're really concerned about impacts of climate change. Panda is so dependent on bamboo as its primary food source. And climate change scenarios show that that could have a massive impact on bamboo. And so the panda loses its bamboo. What's it going to eat? And so we really have to make sure that pandas can move, that there's connectivity between the different reserves. And the response from the Chinese government was fantastic after the change in listing. Instead of reducing their conservation efforts, they ramped them up and had declared a huge protected area to cover most of their habitat to link the existing reserves together. So a really, really positive reaction. That's excellent news. And I suppose it also goes back to what Caroline said already. This, the vet list isn't a static document. With new threats emerging or new impacts on species ranges, things will change. With new knowledge 
things might change. Speaking of knowledge, where are the biggest data gaps on the IUCN medalist? Let's say we were recruiting for future assessors. <laughs> Which kind of species should we? Oh, the three, three, ob- three big obvious ones: plants. We've only assessed a tiny proportion of the world's plant species, so that's a big, big gap. An even smaller proportion of the world's invertebrates, so a really important gap that needs to be filled. And fungi. Fungi are really at the base of most other organisms, and we know very little about fungi. And so the same IUCN categories and the criteria that go with it, they can be applied to all of these different species groups. They can, much harder with the fungal groups, and especially some of the microfungi. The categories and criteria probably won't be applicable to some of those, but certainly the larger fungi, the macrofungi, yes, the system can work for those. This is where we're at the cutting edge of conservation science because how we define what the generation length or a mature individual is in a fungus poses lots of interesting questions. Yeah, I was about to ask you that. What is a mature individual? <laughs> yeah. Where does it start? Where does it end? Exactly. <laughs> Each time we, we enter into assessing a new group, we are learning as well, which is, is great. It's always a bit of an eye-opener when somebody asks us a question about how do you determine a mature individual for this? And we look a bit stumped. <laughs> I have no idea. Let's discuss it. <laughs> Excellent. So who, who comes up with any of these guidelines? that must be given if somebody suddenly wanted to go and assess fungi and ask this question, how do you even define a mature individual for a fungi? So we work with the fungi people. They have the best knowledge of the life history of the species and so they run through different scenarios and come up with different approaches and they come up with what they think would be the best way of doing it. So looking at number of fruiting bodies in a certain area and how many that would equate to an individual. And then we share that information then with our standards group. So this is a set of scientists who are really knowledgeable about the whole reddish process and how to estimate extinction risk. And they look at those proposals and go back and forwards with questions and answers and eventually agree on what would work. And so there are a set of guidelines now around how you would interpret fruity bodies to being mature individuals <laughs> for fungi. And just this last week, our bryophyte people have sent through a document for bryophytes, mosses. How do we go about deciding whether you're dealing with one individual moss Or is it a whole tree covered in mosses, one individual? Lots of different approaches have to be worked out. <laughs> and this is how these guys spend their days. Absolutely fascinating. Pondering mosses. I love it. This has been really enlightening. We've learned a lot about the red list so far, but I also hear that there might be other coloured lists you might want to tell me about that are lurking on the horizon. Yes, so currently we're working on what we're calling the green list. Not very good for colorblind people. We haven't come up with the right name for that product yet, but it's going to be very much integrated as part of the Redless process and be displayed on the Redless website. And it's sort of the counterpart to the extinction risk, saying, okay, the species is currently critically endangered. How do we get it to move down the categories to being less threatened with extinction? And that's what the greenness is all about. So how dependent is that species on conservation activities at the moment to stop it from going extinct? Where do we want to be in 10 years' time? Can we set a reasonable target? Is it just maintain the status quo? Do we want to improve its status? So it changes a category. Where do you want to be in 100 years' time? And so that's what the greenness thing is all about, trying to look at what it takes to prove the status of species and to set those targets. And that would be really helpful to do that because when we have a species changing status like the snow leopard or the giant panda, because those species are such iconic species and are often targets for donors, when a species changes status to a less threatened category, often their criteria for funding are based on the species being critically endangered or endangered. So when it moves down, that means they might reduce the funding. But if we can show through the green list how dependent those species are on those conservation funds, then hopefully they will then change their criteria and say, okay, we won't reduce our funding, we'll continue or even increase it so we can reach this long-term goal of moving the species towards least concern. Excellent idea. I like it. <laughs> I like it very much. 
what we have learned today, particularly just now, is that you know these guys really love their lists, no matter what color they are. <laughs> also, yeah, that about the blue or the black or the green lists, uh, the, the orange lists. <laughs> Do they exist? <laughs> well, there was a blue list, which is very much like the green list concept. So that's fine. It's dealt with. There's orange lists, which are the species that are not yet in the threatened categories. There's the ones that are sort of moving towards being threatened, and so it's like a traffic light system. <laughs> Green's okay, and reds in, on the red list, and orange are things that are moving in the wrong direction and what do we do about them and then the blacklist are the, the bad species out there that are causing lots of the problems the invasives <laughs> and for each of these I suppose we require an extra podcast so yeah. uh, let's keep them for the future I suppose we've also really got a bit of an appreciation what a massive undertaking it is to put these assessments together and what massive volunteer effort really is behind this so how do you guys fit into this what's your day to day in a nutshell <laughs> in a nutshell I don't start it with check emails <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell, we've already said there's a network of 11,000 people out there doing all the exciting things. We are sitting here in the David Attenborough building where the Red List unit is in Cambridge in the UK. And Craig and I and uh, a small team of other people are responsible for managing the data. So we store the Red List data, we manage it, we provide training to the assessors and guidance, we manage all of the guidance notes and documents, and there are lots of those. And we are responsible for making that information available to the world so we manage the website as well and we are busy upgrading and changing the whole website at the moment to a new platform and so something exciting to look forward to terribly exciting yes (laughs) Will the web address stay the same? We can already have a little bit of a promotions tour here. It um, will indeed. The web address will still be iucnredlist.org. Or just Google IUCN Red List and you will come to a massive repository of data on species and also information on how to assess them. So if any species experts listen to this, can they actually feed into um, the yeah, Red List? Yeah, of course. We really want people to provide their feedback. There are data gaps, as we said before. So if you spot something wrong on the red list or you have some information that is not being presented on there and you really want to tell us about it just get in touch with us our contact details are on the website so iucnredlist.org just send an email to us and we'll put you in touch with the right people who have carried out the assessment or we can provide guidance for you but also the whole vast number of people out there who are really knowledgeable, who are not species experts, but are very keen amateur birders or botanists or butterfly experts or whatever, who are not doing this professionally, but there are lots of citizen science initiatives where they can take their observations of those species and feed them into those citizen science initiatives. And that information eventually finds its way through to the redness process and gets taken into account. So there's potentially even more volunteers involved Absolutely. in putting together the IUCN Red List, a number that we can't even quite put our finger on. We also have a free online Red List training course, which anyone can do at all. It's a very detailed course, and there's actually quite a tough exam at the end of it, which you don't have to take, but um, if you want to, give it a go. And you can find that at the Conservation Training website, which is run by our colleagues at the Nature Conservancy, and the address is conservationtraining.org. Fabulous. Everybody get Red List assessing. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.